Welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. This is the show that brings leading minds from the energy industry to discuss the challenges and trends that are transforming and modernizing our energy system. And a quick thank you to West Monroe, our sponsor of today's show. Now, let's talk energy. I'm Jason Price, Energy Central Podcast host and director with West Monroe, coming to you from New York City. And with me, as always, from Orlando, Florida, is Energy Central producer and community manager, Matt Chester. Matt, this week's episode is an important and unique one for Power Perspectives, as we will explore the energy sector in Ukraine and discover any lessons learned to share with our audience on how a resilient grid is not just a weatherization issue, but a military one as well. We will hear from a former colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps and former executive for a multinational utility and energy company in the United States and abroad. But first, Matt, share with us some key data points to kick things off for today's discussion. Sure, Jason. And for our listeners who may not be well-versed in the energy sector in Ukraine, I say don't worry. I wasn't either, but I, I did dig into the numbers a bit for the sake of this episode. Ukraine, it's known as a critical transit country for oil and gas supplies being sent from Russia to Europe. But Ukraine also produces notable amounts of fuels from coal to gas to oil and more. Despite that, Ukraine does rely on imports for about 35% of its total energy supplies. Focusing on the grid specifically, Ukraine as a country consumes 100 134 billion kilowatt hours of power annually that that ranks around 27th of all nations and then in terms of how that power is broken out ukraine has four nuclear plants that provide over half the country's power while fossil fuels make up about 37 percent and to date renewable energy has remained a bit of a more marginal part of their grid mix though hydropower specifically does total a capacity of 12 million kilowatts across the country Thanks for that, Matt. And our next guest knows these facts and figures very well. Our guest today is Steve Walsh, former officer in our military turned utility leader. As I mentioned, Steve retired from the U.S. Marine Corps as a colonel and brings three decades of global leadership spanning roles in power generation, energy distribution, and renewable energy development. His experiences are not only vast, but also richly varied from leading energy distribution companies in both Ukraine and Kazakhstan to serving on the board of the largest hydroelectric power company in Eastern Europe. Given his firsthand encounters with the challenges and successes of the Ukraine power grid, especially amidst political turmoil and conflict, Steve's insights are particularly timely and invaluable. So we're eager to hear his experiences and tease out what lessons our American power company leaders can learn from the success in Ukraine. So with that, please, let's welcome Steve Walsh to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Matt. It's a privilege to be here today. I look forward to uh, engaging in a didactic discussion as it relates to um, the uh, energy system in, in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and how the uh, utilities and or energy companies elsewhere around the world can perhaps take a, um, a lesson learned from what's going on in Ukraine and how they can do things better uh, within their sector. Thank you, Steve. We are thrilled to have you on the show. You have an impressive and diverse career in the power industry that we could only barely scratch the surface of on our introduction for you. So why don't you take a moment to credentialize yourself? Please share your background both in the Marines and in the power sector. And given your time around the globe, covering Latin America, Middle East, East and Western Europe, I have to ask, how many languages do you speak? 
I joined the Navy when I was 17. Soon thereafter, went to the Naval Academy, graduated there in 79, took a commission in the Marines and spent my first 21 years primarily in infantry special operations assignments. I was very fortunate to get the opportunity to serve as an advisor in El Salvador during the Civil War there and got my first real practical energy experience in that I helped rebuild a geothermal plant that was in the area that I was uh, assigned that had been damaged by the guerrillas. So that was my first practical energy experience, if you wish. When I retired the first time from the Marine Corps, I joined AES, a big global power company, and I worked primarily in Latin America in distribution and in generation assets in leadership capacities. In 2004, I was recalled to active duty because I was told I had a unique skill set that the military needed, and I spent 18 months in Iraq and Afghanistan as electricity program officer rebuilding energy generation transmission distribution, which was uh, exciting to say the least. Went back to AES, served at the corporate headquarters as the VP of Government Legislative Affairs, and then went back into operational roles in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, the Middle East. Left to AES in 2012, set up my own company that did mergers acquisition advice, and then got hired by Traxxas, where I currently work in 2013, and uh, have been with them for about 10 years, working on difficult workout situations, process improvement, what have you. So I've got a, a very... Uh, interesting, shall I say, uh, skill set from the standpoint of get, being fed with a fire hose. As far as languages, I grew up speaking Spanish and English and then uh, have learned uh, Russian and a little bit of French uh, since then. So that's about as far as I can go on the, uh, on the language barrier. Well, that's impressive. Thank you for that background. Really fascinating. And, and want to dig into really the, the meat of the discussion today is what's going on in Ukraine and what you're learning and all. So as noted, you have visited Ukraine numerous times since the conflict with Russia began. What can you tell us about the state of the Ukrainian power grid amid this extreme type of stress? And what are the challenges and how has the grid and the nation's electric sector workers respond to them? It's been discussed, Jason. Uh, I ran Uker Hydroenergo and Kiev Obelnergo, which are two distribution companies that at the time AES owned in Ukraine. And I did that for about four years from about 2006 to about 2010. We had about 1.6 million meters spread out over 50,000 square kilometers of territory. So all we did was distribution, bring the, the power to the house or bring it to the business and then you know charge it. We didn't do transmission lines and we didn't do power generation. But what I observed in those four years was the resiliency of not only the Ukrainian people, but equally important, the resiliency of the system that was how it was originally designed during Soviet times. Times. There's a famous quote by Vladimir Lenin that says, communism is the power of the Soviet people and the electrification of the nation, words to that effect. And that really hit home to me in that the grid, as we would know it or call it, within the former Soviet Union was redundant and extensive from the standpoint that every little village, no matter where it was, had electricity brought to it. They might not have running water, they may have a well, but every little village has got electrical power. And to keep that electrical power going, because obviously the villages, many of them are very remote, they had to have redundant systems that had multiple lines coming in and out to allow that power to basically be on all the time. 
I think that is one of the fundamental characteristics of why the Ukrainian system has been able to hold up so well, you know, an inherent redundancy. And then you combine that with the character of the Ukrainian people in that they are very adept at, as we used to call it in the Marine Corps, improvising, adapting, and overcoming. What I mean by that is they're very good at fixing something either on the fly, on their own, not waiting for, shall we say, a third party and times even a national government to come in and repair stuff, because that's in the nature of the system that was developed during Soviet times. During Soviet times, it was pretty obvious that the state couldn't provide or didn't provide everything you needed or even wanted. So as a consequence, you had to do a workaround. And the Ukrainian people are experts at the workaround in that you know someone who can fix it or you can fix it yourself. You know someone who's got a line on the supplies you need or they know someone that can get you the supplies you need outside the system. And it's that, shall we call it a workaround mentality that allows them to basically repair the grid quickly within sometimes hours of an attack that otherwise would be waiting for supplies for weeks. So I think that's the inherent resiliency that they have and they're using it certainly to their advantage. All right, well, that's really interesting because they're facing a whole different set of issues compared to the United States, but at the end of the day, the system goes down for one reason or the other. In our case, obviously, it's um, a lot of it has to do with climate change and the impacts of weatherization, uh, fedge management issues, and so on and so forth. So for our audience, share with us, you know, put your critical hat on and, and do some comparing and contrasting. What are some lessons that perhaps we could take away from how the Ukrainians are maintaining their resiliency, and what can we learn? from the things they're doing? You know, first and foremost, time spent improving redundancy in the grid is absolutely critical and it pays dividends exponentially. As most people know, 90% of, of outages in a distribution system occur because of vegetation. A tree grows into the line, a tree falls on the line, the post rots and falls over, something like that. When I was in Ukraine, we spent a significant portion of our budget on vegetation management. And as a consequence, we didn't have a lot of vegetation-related outages, principally because we were very aggressive in spending both money and in how we reduced the, the threat of vegetation-induced outages. So I think that's one thing. Sadly, in a lot of distribution companies in America, vegetation management becomes you know kind of the weak sister, if you wish, and the neglected portfolio. And you're always fighting for an increased cut cycle or, or that sort of thing. And oftentimes, it's the first to suffer. A good example of that would be the previous management and practices with PSE&G out on the West Coast. PEG probably now wishes that they had a different attitude toward vegetation management, having gone bankrupt and paying out billions of dollars in claims for um, for fires started by their by their network. So that's probably one one good takeaway. The other is demand management that I think very common in my experience overseas where you will call people up to reduce power or, or literally just go ahead and open a circuit, you know, so you don't want to have wide swings in the grid when it comes to, to managing the network versus just, you know, try to provide as much power to everyone all the time, which is probably an unrealistic attitude to have. So I think those are, are two of the big things as it relates to lessons learned that we can can understand from uh, what's going on in Ukraine. I don't know if that resonates with some of the uh, listeners or not. 
Yeah, I think so. I think that a lot of our listeners, the knee-jerk response to weatherization or resiliency issues is to just build, build, and build. In this case, Ukraine is doing more of a lower cost, redundant type of a network. So it puts things in perspective in terms of like, you know, communities along the water, uh, building that back up after a storm comes through. A lot of communities are putting that into question now in terms of the sensibility of making those kinds of investments over and over again. And what does that mean from an equity standpoint of everyone else having to pay for that? Perhaps there's other ways to look at keeping that community along the water resilient through um, perhaps some lessons learned in uh, other areas of the, of the planet that uh, look at resiliency and redundancy differently than perhaps we're looking at it. I think you raised some some interesting thoughts there. I think resiliency is obviously key. The sad part about the reality in, in many Western countries is you're dealing with a regulated utility or regulated environment, and that regulated environment it's almost like you're constantly fighting with with a regulator trying to put something into a rate base. Oftentimes, you don't do the the right thing. You do the easiest thing, or you do something that is probably going to get approved versus what really should be done. But that's the reality of the world that we live in. So certainly during Soviet times, there was no regulator. There was no, had to make a case and do a, a business analysis. We'll put the line through wherever we have to. Permitting wasn't an issue. We'll do it because it's the right thing to do. The reality is we don't live in that environment anymore, certainly in, in the West. That's what we have to deal with. All right. So I do want to ask you about a bit more about the industry itself, the utility industry in the Ukraine. So share with us, you know, are there other ways that you see the war in Ukraine impacting the job of the utilities? And in what ways does that come to mind? You know, for example, how do you see the war impacting supply chain and workforce? Certainly, of course, national defense and grid mod. But, you know, apply your lens of Ukraine on what this means for the rest of the energy and utility industry. I think first and foremost, and we'll start with the supply chain, having spares is always kind of a, a difficult task to perform because, you know, something that's sitting on the sidelines, not being used, waiting for the catastrophic or emergency event to occur, you've got significant capital tie tied up. And what we've seen in Ukraine is that first and foremost, the Russians, when they use the correct piece of equipment, we'll call it a, a cruise missile that is purposely designed for a ground attack not a anti-aircraft missile repurposed, they can be extremely accurate when it comes to targeting nodal infrastructure within the energy space. Primarily, they tend to go after not only power stations, but large transformers. And I've seen that at Ukrahydro Energo with multiple cruise missile strikes into not the power station itself, but into the large transformers, step up, step down transformers that we have that are at any power station. And they are oftentimes custom built long lead items to order keeping extras of those or protecting that infrastructure that usually there's a blast wall around a, a large transformer. That's purely for if it's an internal fire, if something happens to the transformer. The reality is now you're seeing former sites hardened against external missile attack is now becoming a requirement because sourcing a large transformer oftentimes is extremely difficult. So I think redundancy in major equipment items that can be moved around and used in multiple locations is a must. 
We don't do a very good job of that in the United States. We probably need to focus some more attention on that in the event that we were to suffer a catastrophic loss of some large-scale transformers. But the reality is they're expensive, they're difficult to move, but when you need one, you really need one. So that's probably one of the biggest things that I've seen in the nine visits since the uh, invasion that I've made back to Ukraine for board meetings and elsewhere is the um, key infrastructure items, having spares of those that can be deployed to put back the grid back to uh, where it was. Any comments on your everyday utility worker, just sort of like what's their mood, how are they doing? Do they? I mean, in many respects, they are on the front lines as much as the soldier carrying the gun, providing a service to the country, maintaining the energy flow is, is critical to keep food cold and uh, preserved and medicines cool and Share with us any uh, conversations you had, any thoughts you want to share? I spend a significant amount of time when I travel to Ukraine going to just about everywhere that's more or less safe, and that's a relative term, of course, to meet with the rank and file folks that are that are fixing stuff, that are operating machinery, that are operating power station, repairing you know transformers or transmission lines. And probably they are some of the most stoic folks I've ever met. They understand that it's up to them and to them alone to make things work. You see people that no one's worried about, hey, am I on the clock? Am I on overtime? Am I going to get paid for this? I got to get this on because I'm the only one that can do it. And if I don't reconnect the system, the village down the street is not going to have electricity. And as we know, once you get used to having electricity, you really like it and you don't want to live without it. So I think the stoic mindset of the Ukrainian people, and which brings me to another point, let's not forget Ukraine, the greater Ukraine area has been invaded bomb strafed attacked you know for centuries this is not just a one off what the russians have done it seems like their entire history for the last 500 years is somebody's been running over them running through them imposing will against them what have you enforcing famine like the they did in the 30s the soviet government did to the ukrainians try to break their will literally starved 3 million people and took their food away you have a a group of people that have a tremendous amount of grit, I have to honestly say. They don't complain a lot. They just get stuff done when it gets really difficult. And I think that is a very good characteristic to have, particularly in times like now. Some countries, they don't really have that. That is pretty much rank and file throughout the the folks in the energy sector. That said, a lot of people in the energy sector, they get more or less an exemption from military duty being called up in the draft. We have over 100 people in Ukrahidroenergo who volunteered to go and fight, which is pretty impressive when they could sit on the sidelines, but they've volunteered to go forward. And we've also had people killed and wounded at the job, you know, at the power stations when uh, they've been attacked by the Russian cruise missiles and drones and stuff like that. To survive tough times, you need tough people. So, Steve, you come from a military background, which surely impacts the way you see military applications and integrations of our energy technologies, as well as grids as a strategic asset to protect and for, of course, our enemies to target. So for any of our uh, utility leaders listening in, are there any specific ways you suggest that the military lens should be considered perhaps more so or differently than perhaps in the past in terms of what we can learn from what's going on in Ukraine by our utility leaders? 
I think there's probably a couple. First and foremost, it's a continuation of the mission, if you wish. If the mission is to provide power to the people and that requires key people in key positions, then probably the first and foremost, you know, for a utility would be what is your succession plan? I am amazed by the difficulty oftentimes they have when someone leaves, either voluntarily, involuntarily, there's a scramble around trying to find someone to replace them, you know, to keep the ship on course or to keep going in the right direction, you know, pick a word. That's absolutely critical. Having a viable succession plan for everything, for every job you have, if someone can't come to work or if, you know, if they're disabled or killed or what have you, someone's going to step up and move right into that position. They may take a little bit of training or they may not be as perfectly smooth as a previous individual, but having a succession plan, a viable succession plan throughout the business is absolutely key. And that's what one of the big lessons, I think, from Ukraine, because people get called up for military duty, they get killed or wounded. You got to have someone step right in because the mission, keeping the ship afloat, keeping the ship on course, keeping the customer supplied with energy, that's non-negotiable. You got to do that. To do that, you need to have a good succession plan, rock solid. So the key people are decision makers. There's always somebody there to get something done. I think that's first and foremost. Second part is planning. This is a, a universe where you have to plan for the probable, not necessarily the possible. A lot of people will complain about, I've got to plan for so many catastrophes or potential you know, disturbances. They're probably looking at the possible. My transformer is going to be hit by a meteorite. Okay, that's maybe possible. Is it probable? No, it's not. So what you have to do is you allocate your resources for the probable and then plan accordingly. And then I think lastly would be a perfect plan, perfectly executed, probably is not as good from a time perspective to address the issue as a good plan, 85%, 90% complete, executed very quickly, that oftentimes is better than the perfect plan. So I think we in the utility space often try to plan something to the nth degree when the reality is you got to get energy restored, you got to get the lights back on. An 85% solution done quickly and done forcefully is often better than a perfect plan. So I think those are the three big things that I would say from a military perspective. There's a common phrase in the military, the first plan, your plan of attack never survives the first contact. So you always have to be able to, in football terms, call an audible. And I think the more you plan, the better you get at it, certainly, but be prepared to call an audible to adjust the plan accordingly as the situation dictates. That's one of the big things that the military taught me and, and has carried over into my time as a, in the civilian uh, industry. And Steve, you also, you know, besides the military background, you also have a global background, global perspective. You shared with us, traveled the world and from South America, Middle East, East and Western Europe, of course, the United States. So you really interesting and, and unique lens. Share with us, what are some common threads that you see, as well as unique differences that you see when you visit a grid and utility across the globe? What, what's, what has surprised you and stood out as something that's very common and then also something that clever and unique to the culture or country that you're visiting? I've had that, that opportunity to do not only operate a business, run a business, but also to do some due diligence on, on the mergers acquisition side, look at acquisitions. And I'll use an example. When I was living in Ukraine, AES was invited to come and bid for basically to run the distribution network 
of Albania. And I had never been to Albania and spent a week there and started you know, looking at the, at the business. And it was owned by the government and they were going to privatize it and they were going to sell it to a, a company like AAS and they were going to manage the distribution network of the country of Albania. And about 20 minutes into my investigation, I, I made a you know, kind of comment. I said, well, let me see your accounts receivable. Are they aged? What the status of payment was? I found out that the highest non-payer of the bills for energy you know, in Albania was surprisingly the Albanian government itself. And when we, we AES elected to pass and not put a bid in, the Albanian government at the time was, was astonished. They're like, well, you're 26 countries around the world. Why don't you want to come and run our, buy our grid and, and, and run our distribution network? I pointed out to them, I said, well, you know, we want to be successful, but if, if the government itself is not paying their bills, how can we expect to have anyone pay their bills and, and be able to run this efficiently? So I think the paradigm shift for me was just because the bill payer is a government entity, don't expect that it will always be timely in their payments. To use a, another analogy, when I lived in, and worked in, in Ukraine, one of my customers was you know, the Chernobyl power station. Now, the power station at Chernobyl was, unit number four was destroyed in test gone bad. I think everyone realizes that. It wasn't an experiment. It was an actual deliberate test. It obviously didn't go well. The other three reactors were, over time, shut down. The U.S. government, along with some European Union funding, built a series of cooling ponds to take the reactors from reactors one, two, and three, take their cores out, and put them in a cooling pond. The cooling pond basically circulates cold water around the reactor that's going to decay over the next 150 years until it's you know, basically not giving off any heat. Almost every other month, I had to go to Chernobyl and meet with the station manager who was there to get him to pay his electric bill because we were supplying electricity to the site. Inevitably, they would not pay. They knew right away that you know they were behind on their payments, and it was a government entity. And I knew <laughs> that I wasn't going to cut off the power because if I did, all the water would boil out of the cooling ponds, and it would be obviously a disaster. So it was a you know kind of a kabuki dance, if you wish, with <laughs> the station manager to finally get him to address to pay the to pay the bill, so I could at least come clean on all my customers and as to what their status of payment was. So I think that's a, oftentimes a, an interesting cultural difference when you're dealing with state-owned entities that sometimes think that they don't have to follow the rules that they themselves or the government has set up, which is a, an interesting one. From the standpoint of rural electrification, my time around the world, I have found nowhere that people don't appreciate having electricity. They may not be so concerned whether it's coming from a renewable source or not, but everyone, and I mean everyone, is a supporter of rural electrification. If you're in the middle of nowhere, you'd like to have a power line to yourself. Yeah, you can have some off-grid setups, which in some aspects are the reality. If you're in the middle of nowhere, Congo, I spent a lot of time in, in the DRC, and there are places there, mine sites, where the distributed generation is the only way to do it. But for the most part, rural electrification really does bring prosperity. We've pretty much put the grid in the United States to every place where it needs to go. But in the rest of the world, there are often places that rural electrification really is a, is a huge thing to do. 
and it's probably money well spent because once you have electricity, it gives you so much more opportunity to, to work 24-7. It gives you the opportunity to expand the local economy. So I think that's one of the big things uh, that I'm a big proponent of is rural electrification you know, whenever possible. You really see it overseas from my experience. That's interesting. That's a great compare and contrast. So thank you for that. Steve, we're going to give you the last word, but we're now moving into what we call the lightning round, which gives us an opportunity to learn a little bit more about you, the person, rather than you, the professional. So we have a set of questions that we're going to ask you, and, and we ask you to keep your response to one word or phrase. So are you ready? I was born ready. Okay. Fantastic. I love it. So what's your favorite place you've ever traveled? Argentina. Best advice for someone who's going to a new country for an extended period of time for work? Be humble and ask lots of questions. Do you have any hidden talents? I'm a pretty good horseman. Is there anything you would like to say to those in Ukraine who may be listening to this podcast? And you can say it both in English and in Ukrainian. Slava Ukraina. Which is? Glory to Ukraine. What are you most passionate about? I'm most passionate about living an interesting and purposeful life. All right, like I said, we we're going to give you the final word. So for all those people who may be listening, executives or decision makers of power companies, including our allies across the world, what is some uh, single resounding message you'd like them to take away from today's conversation? If you're in the energy sector, irrespective of, of where you land, I think the responsibilities you have are without equal. And I certainly encourage those that are thinking about a career in the energy space to dive in feet first. For those of you that are there, I thank you for your dedication and support to make the world a better place. I applaud all of you, and uh, I look forward to hopefully meeting some of you in person sometime. Fantastic. So, Steve, you know, it's our goal always to try to get unique perspectives, and you being a former Marine and executive in utilities, I think we've hit the mark here. So we are so thrilled to have you on the show and hear from you and your experiences across the globe. Really appreciate your time today and um, look forward to having you back on the show and telling us more of the wisdom that you're uh, encountering as your career continues to evolve. So, Steve, thank you again. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Matt. It's been you know my pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. Be well. Likewise. So you can always reach Steve through the Energy Central platform where he welcomes your questions and comments. And we also want to give a shout out of thanks to our podcast sponsors that made today's episode possible. Thanks to West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. West Monroe brings a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, data analytics, and cybersecurity. And once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. And we'll see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast. Mm -hmm.